Hear, for this is the word of the Lord. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so, with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In every church, there always comes a time when there are talks about a building project. Now, funny thing is, we will be discussing such a matter this morning in our annual meeting. It could be a simple fixing of odds and ends, maybe uh, to build an addition to the existing building, or maybe to build an entirely new building from the ground up. And the builders who are responsible to draw up the plans for uh, the building know that the most important part of the edifice is not the roof, nor the windows, or the doors, or the walls, not even the frame of the building. It is the foundation. It doesn't matter how nice the building looks. If you have a bad foundation, you have a bad building. If the foundation moves, the whole building is going with it. According to the scriptures, 
There is a building project that is far more important than what we are a part of physically. In the scriptures, God uses the analogy of a building project to describe how he is building the church individually and corporately. He has given the church leaders to equip you uh, for that growth, yet each one of us has a responsibility to ask ourselves, what am I building my life on? Or better, who am I building my life on? Who are we building the church on? In our text, this question comes with a confrontation. Remember, this is a turning point in the history of redemption where the old temple system was going to fade away and be replaced and rebuilt. Jesus confronts the leaders of his day because they have failed in leading the people of God in true worship. And he explains the significance of who he is in relationship to them. After he cleansed the temple of buying and selling, uh, the next day, the chief priests, scribes, and elders of Israel question his authority. And in a veiled and indirect way, Jesus revealed that his authority was not man-made or earth-bound, but his authority comes directly from heaven. His authority comes directly from God, his Father. He does this by asking them a question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? According to the Gospel of St. Mark, the obvious answer would be from heaven because when Jesus was baptized by John, the heavens was torn open, the Spirit descended on him like a dove, a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. But they rejected John's ministry. They rejected his claims that he was preparing the way of the Lord. They rejected John's call to repentance. So, in other words, they rejected Jesus' authority. But we are still left with the question. If he received his authority from heaven, then who is he? He would go on to answer this question in a parable. He tells them the parable of the tenants. It was about a man who planted a vineyard. The man was God, and the vineyard was Israel. And the man put a fence around the vineyard and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. These would represent the original uh, building project, that is, the altar and the sanctuary of the temple. And, And the man leased the vineyard to tenants who was to care for the vineyard and collect the fruit. The tenants were the chief priests, scribes, and elders, or the religious leaders to whom he was speaking with. And they were responsible to lead the people of God in worship and the service of God. Now when the harvest season came, the man sent servants to collect from the tenants. The servants were the prophets of old who were sent to Israel over the centuries to see if there were any fruits of godly living. And if there wasn't, they would preach especially to the leaders of Israel, that they are to repent and turn to God. But the tenants beat some and killed others. So the master finally sent his beloved son to the tenants, thinking that they would respect him. Now Jesus just revealed who he is in this parable in relation to the servants, to the tenants, and to the vineyard. 
He is the son of the owner of the vineyard. The son is not like the servants, meaning he doesn't have the same nature as the servants. He is the heir of the inheritance. He has authority over all of the characters in this parable. He has authority over the tenants, the servants, and the vineyard, just like his father. He is just as much their master as the owner is. He is not one of the servants. He is not just another prophet. That answered their question, who gave you this authority to do what you're doing? He summarizes, God my Father has sent me to collect. But what did the tenants decide to do? This was a prophetic parable. He was foretelling what they were going to do to him. And he was warning them of the coming judgment for rejecting him. He says, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. That is, the twelve apostles who will lay the foundation of the church. Now, why would the owner destroy the tenants? Was it because they refused to give up some of the crops? No. The crops are not even mentioned. The reason why the owner destroys the tenants is because they rejected and killed the son. This reminds me of the second psalm that in the face of the people rebelling against God, it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Then he warns all people that they are to submit to his son or face his wrath. And he ends the psalm by saying, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the parable is all about Jesus. Your eternity depends on whether or not you have received or rejected His Son, Jesus Christ. It will not be solely based on your fruits or your lifestyle, though good works are required of us as fruits and evidence of our faith. But here, it is not about the produce of the vineyard, but it is about the rejection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the foundation of any good fruit. Jesus told his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But these religious leaders rejected their only hope. He is their mediator to God, their only way to God. So Jesus goes back to the scriptures to show them. We see Jesus do this time and time again as he goes back to and relies on the authority of the scriptures. The scriptures that these leaders would have been familiar with. He quotes Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. At various places in the scriptures, the Messiah is referred to as a stone. In the context of Psalm 118, the stone was speaking of David being rejected for his youth when he was first anointed by Samuel. He was just a boy keeping sheep. 
But the Lord had greater plans for him. He was to become the greatest king Israel would see until the Christ arrived. But Psalm 118 is also speaking about the Messiah as the stone. Listen to the prophecy in Isaiah. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Or as Peter interprets for us, whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, will not be put to shame. One of the more famous passages referring to the Messiah as this stone is found in Daniel chapter 2, when Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the four kingdoms that ruled this world. They are represented in a large image or a statue of a body. The head was made of gold. The chest and arms were made of silver. Its middle and thighs were of bronze. Its legs of iron. Its feet were part iron, part clay. So in other words, it didn't have a good foundation, right? Then in a vision, a stone that was not cut out by human hands, meaning the stone was cut out by God himself, struck the image at its feet and broke them in pieces, which caused the rest of the statue to fall and break into pieces. And this is speaking of the ultimate judgment that the Messiah will bring to all people and nations of the world that reject him. Now this stone is not only for striking the nations. But this stone is also meant to build. Or better, the stone is meant to rebuild. The Messiah is going to judge the nations that reject him. And he is prophesied to rebuild the temple. He is to be judge and savior. Listen to Isaiah again. And he will become a sanctuary or a refuge, a temple, and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. Now the builders in our text, referring to the religious leaders, rejected this stone and he warned that they will be judged for it. They rejected the one who was to rebuild the temple, the temple that they corrupted with their sin. And they will put him on a cross and kill him. This is the greatest and most evil act of rejection recorded in all of human history. The Son of God was rejected and killed by His own people. John records it like this. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, that is, His own creation. And His own people did not receive Him. But the irony in this text is that this is the way to his vindication, meaning he will be cleared of all the blame because he is blameless and he will be declared Lord of all. And also, this is the way of our salvation. It says, The stone that the builders rejected has become 
the cornerstone. Uh, this is an example of what theologians over the centuries have called a theodicy. My laptop dictionary definition says that theodicy is the vindication or justification of divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil. Meaning, God and evil can and does exist at the same time. And God is not the blame for evil. This helps with when people question God's existence because of the existence of evil. They say, how can God exist when there is so much evil? When so many bad things have happened to me or to the people I know, how could God allow that? But we see, from great evil can come the greatest divine good. We know that, yes, God has ordained all things to come to pass. But He is not the blame for evil. How is that? We don't know. And we're not meant to know. The secret things belong to the Lord. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That we may do all the words of this, His law. So what we do know is that all things that do happen are for God's glory and for our good, for our salvation. What happened to Jesus when he was rejected and killed was evil. It was the most evil event to have ever occurred. Yet the greatest good came out of it. Because this passage is not about karma. There's no such thing as karma. It is not about the Jewish leaders rejecting someone and it's coming around to bite them, right? We can't use this passage to say to our employer, well, if you reject me, your entire business is going to fall apart because I may be the cornerstone of your entire operation. Believe it or not, I've heard it used this way. I believe it was Bob Marley who used it uh, this way in a song to speak of himself being rejected by others. But no. No. This is strictly about Jesus and the evil that happened to him. This was more evil than any other event to happen to any human being in human history. This is the most evil event ever. You name the event. Note, I take all of these events seriously and we ought to condemn and mourn over these events with the utmost respect and sympathy for the victims and their families. But what happened to Jesus was more evil and more diabolical than the transatlantic slave trade. More evil than the Holocaust. More evil than the millions of people who died of starvation due to the evil system of communism. More evil than the attack on Pearl Harbor. More evil than the attack on the Twin Towers. More evil than the millions and billions of babies who have been murdered in the womb. We're talking about the rejection and murder of God's beloved Son. 
He deserved no evil to happen to him because he had no evil in himself. While we all deserve nothing but wrath and misery for every moment of our lives. That's what we deserve. But he deserved none of it. And we are to blame for all the evil in the world. We sinned against God first. Here it is the tenants who are to blame for killing the son. It is the builders who are to blame for rejecting the stone. Peter proclaims this to Israel on Pentecost in his first recorded sermon as those who killed Jesus were given another chance. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus, who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, meaning it was the Lord's doing, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The blame was on Israel and the lawless men, though it was all part of God's plan. Well, that sounds contradictory. It doesn't make sense. It's not meant to. It's not meant to make sense. Who are you and who am I to judge God's plan? We ought to rejoice that even when there was evil, the most evil thing to have ever occurred in the death of God's Son, there was also divine goodness that came out of it. Later, Peter says this after they felt the guilt in their hearts. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Good news out of Great evil. The stone that was rejected would become the cornerstone, the cornerstone in the building project of God. Now, what is the cornerstone and what does that mean for us? The cornerstone could be referring to the first stone that one lays to make a foundation, it is used to line up all of the other stones that are laid after it. All the other stones must align with this cornerstone. In other words, it must be united to this cornerstone. The cornerstone is to be strong, reliable, and stable, or the building project will eventually fall. Listen to what Paul says of his own life and ministry. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. No other foundation but Jesus Christ, who is our solid rock. Every other foundation is moving sand. It will eventually fall apart. Or this cornerstone, as some suggest, could be referring to the last stone, or from the strict Greek translation, the headstone that is placed on the top corner of the building to complete the building project, specifically the temple, which is placed there to draw our attention. Now, either interpretation would be okay, for it is still 
good news, whether it is the first stone that is laid for the foundation or the last stone that is placed to complete the building project. Either way, what he is saying is that the builders rejected the most important stone of all. He was to them a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whether he is the first or the last stone, he is the cornerstone in the new temple not made with hands. In fact, he is the first and the last in the building project of God. Because this is what Jesus came to do. He came to rebuild the temple and to make us all temples of the Holy Spirit. A spiritual temple, not a physical temple. In other words, he came to save us. Listen to Paul again. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that is, the word of God. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Listen to Peter. As you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Out of God's love and grace, He gave up His Son to die for us. And that was all part of His plan. It says, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Out of the most evil event came the best news we could ever hear, the news of our salvation. So in the building project of your life, what or who is the most important stone? Without Jesus, your building may look okay for now. You may even live a a good life, have a nice family, make good enough money to support them. But that's only for now. Until it is time to face eternity. Death and judgment are knocking on your door every day. And then, it will be a shame if we find out that we were building on sinking sand. Because by then it will be too late. In the building project of our church... Who is the most important stone? We may look the part. We may look busy and successful. But are we building on Christ and Christ alone? Is he our chief cornerstone? And are we serving Christ and his people? Or is it all about us? But how did the hearers respond? There are many times when preachers have been approached by someone who would ask, was the sermon today about me? If it was me, I would respond, I I, I wasn't speaking to you directly. 
And that wasn't only speaking to you. I, I never write a sermon with one person in mind. In fact, the sermon was directed at everyone, including myself. It wasn't only about you, I, I reassure you. It was about all of you, right? It was about everyone. And yes, every sermon should be about you and your relationship to God. Because God uses the word to convince you of your sin and your need of a savior. The Holy Spirit is using the word to convict you so that you may turn to him. Whenever you read the Bible or listen to a sermon, you ought to always ask yourself, am I the bad guy in the story? I'll give you the answer before you ask. Yes, you are. We're all sinners. The only man who is not a sinner in the entire story of the Bible is Jesus. We are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders in the story. We are Adam and Eve who fell in the Garden of Eden. We are no better. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins until the Spirit makes us alive to His Word. And the difference between believers and unbelievers is found in the response to His Word. The evidence of whether or not the Holy Spirit is working in your life is the response that you have to His Word. Look at the response of the Jewish leaders. It is a similar response that we read when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden and how Cain responded when God approved of Abel's sacrifice instead of his. What did they do? Well, Cain killed Abel. What are they seeking to do to Jesus? They're seeking to kill him. And Adam and Eve tried to flee from God's presence. It says here, they went away. Listen to how they responded to the parable. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. He became a rock of stumbling to them. They knew what he was saying, and they knew it was about them. The problem was the response. We know that God is sovereign over every heart, but that doesn't excuse us from responding to the word of God. There are always only two responses to God's word and to Jesus. We'll either receive the word of God or we'll reject it and walk away. As I mentioned, John records how Jesus was rejected by his own people. But he also included the way of salvation when he says, but to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, though we respond, it is all the Lord's doing as he laid a foundation in Zion for us, a stone, a precious cornerstone, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Amen.